Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast featuring conversations with some of the brightest minds working in the media business today. I'm Variety Co-Editor-in-Chief Andrew Wallenstein. Later this month, Hulu will debut the new original miniseries Catch-22, an adaptation of the classic 1961 novel. Its executive producers include George Clooney, Steve Golan, an industry legend who recently passed away, as well as one of Steve's partners at their company, Anonymous Content, today's guest, Richard Brown. As a veteran producer of programming like Catch-22, True Detective, and Outlaw King, he's got great perspective to share what it's like navigating the fast-changing market for premium entertainment. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Steve. Now, if you would have told me even I think five years ago, you were going to do this Catch-22 remake, George Clooney is attached. I immediately would assume, well, great. Well, that'll work well on the awards circuit. It'll be a film. It'll be in consideration at Sundance. Now that we're seeing it as a serialized television show, I mean, I guess would you agree with my presumption that this would have been unthinkable some time ago? Oh, sure. I think that's certainly the case. Um, everything's changed in the last five, six, seven, eight years quite radically. Uh, for me, it began to change when I heard about the Netflix deal to buy and make House of Cards, right? So when that deal happened, they, they pre-bought 26 episodes of that show based on, you know, David Fincher and Bo Willem and, you know, the, the team who made that show's essential pitch, right? And um, prior to that, the best you could really hope for in television, I think, was a pilot deal. That was sort of the gold standard was to get a pilot deal at, let's say, HBO or Showtime or, you know. And um, when Netflix bought that show, bought House of Cards and committed to two seasons and, in fact, only took the U.S. rights because at that point Netflix only operated also in the U.S., their streaming service at least. Uh, and so the producers were able to sell the rest of the world, you know, separately, territory by territory. It just seemed like it was transformative to the television business, right, because now it was a different set of rules. You know, now everybody was, was going to have to adjust their business models to compete with Netflix. If Netflix were serious, which they clearly were and meant business about aggressively buying exciting, prestigious content. And so this was a moment where, I, you know, I was quite frustrated with trying to make independent movies um, and trying to find, find the money. It was always a struggle. You got it done, but it was always a struggle. And I was interested in... Um, what the possibilities of television were going to be in this new world of streaming. So when Netflix made that deal, I think Steve Golan and I recognized this was a moment where possibly we could try new paradigms and new models of, of television. And this is where True Detective came from because we developed True Detective as a what used to be called a miniseries and now we'll call perhaps limited series or event series. But we developed it as a film, which is to say we developed the scripts internally. We attached a director to direct all of it, it's Kerry Fukunaga. And then we attached Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey to star in it before we made a deal with any broadcaster. So by the time we went out to meet the, the various broadcasters and distributors, it was a pretty compelling proposition. And so we were able to um, choose the right home for the project and not only legislate the uh, economic terms, but also legislate the creative methodology by which we'd make the show. And so we essentially made True Detective season one like an eight-hour movie and then cut it into episodes, which was atypical for television at that time. And because the first season of True Detective had such a large impact, I think it opened up space to play around with different 
models of TV, different paradigms, different structures, different episode lengths, different, you know. So Catch-22 is a six-episode, six-hour series, which I think a few years ago, nobody would have been that interested in the six-hour series. Are there other formats still that you think uh, are worth experimenting with that you're looking for the Netflixes and HBOs of the world to try? Uh, anthology series or things I'm not even thinking of? I think the space that's opened up is a space where you can uh, tell stories that are too long to be movies, but don't perhaps want to be ongoing, you know, multi-season TV series. So the space of six, eight or 10 hour stories. And so... In the case of Catch-22, you know, Mike Nichols made a film from Catch-22 in 1970, and obviously Mike Nichols was a genius. But the film's not, not great. It's good. I mean, there's great moments in it. But I think our takeaway, Luke and David and I, and originally was that perhaps it's, very difficult, it's a very difficult book to adapt into a two-hour movie. It's a very dense and, and complex circular structure. And so we thought that perhaps given six or eight or ten hours, we could figure out how to tell Catch-22. And that's, in fact, what we have, have attempted to do. So. When you watch Catch-22, True Detective as well, there is something so filmic about every scene. Every, it just doesn't feel like a TV show would have felt five, ten years ago. Do you think you've kind of blown the doors open in terms of inviting TV producers of all types to really kind of approach that, that blurred line between film and television series in a whole new way? I mean, I think it's always interesting to try and find a sweet spot between film and TV, right? To see how close you can bring film and TV. Obviously, the, the distinction in, in traditional movies and traditional TV has been that TV is generally, generally, you know, traditional television has been run by, creatively run by the writer-producer. Whereas, of course, films are traditionally creatively run by the director. And both of those models make plenty of sense, but they also both have limitations, right? The limitation in film has been sometimes that the writer is devalued and less of like less central to the role of making the film. Once the script is ready to shoot, the director sort of takes over and makes the movie. And in obviously not always, but typically. And in, in television, the writer producer is really like the captain of the ship, right? And so the directors who are coming in to direct episodes are very often sort of uh, working within parameters that have been predefined and decisions have been made, creative decisions have been made already by the producer-writer. So you're not necessarily maximizing the role of the director as a, as a, a visionary who has a command of the tools of cinema. So from, in my understanding, my sense of things is that t there was very little cinema in TV because the methodology of making TV didn't really allow for that. So this sort of hybrid model of making episodic, this hybrid model that's, you know, neither traditional television nor traditional filmmaking, I think allows you to find, look for, and hopefully find a kind of sweet spot. The first piece of that is elevating the role of the director. In this case of True Detective, the idea was, of course, to have one director directing the whole season mm -hmm. and you can have a kind of elevated cinematic grammar. And in the case of Catch-22, we have three directors, but it was three directors really working as one director. And George and Grant and Alan all sort of working as a team. So, it, And we shot it like a movie, really. We block shot it. We cross-boarded and shot the whole thing in... Uh, so, you know, not, 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 we didn't cover that in episodes. It was, mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it was one giant shoot. I'm also wondering, in, as you work with the Netflixes of the world, there seems to be 
the leading streaming services, you know, snapping up the exclusive services of big producers like a Shonda Rhimes, uh, a Ryan Murphy. Uh, what does that mean for a producer like yourself in terms of the opportunities out there? Could we see you, you know, for instance, work with just one company or how do you play this new field? I mean, for me, it's always um, been about material. And I think uh, one of the things I learned from Steve Golan, who I, I worked with for many years, um, was really, you know, it's all about it's all about the material, stupid. Know, to, to be sure. simplistic about it, right? So as a producer and as a creative producer, my job initially is to identify a story that I want to tell, whether I find the idea or a writer brings me the idea or a filmmaker and I find the idea together. The, the mission is to develop a script or scripts that are, that are great and compelling. Mm-hmm. And once you have a compelling script, then perhaps you can attract you know, the necessary talents to bring it to life, whether that be the director or the actors. And then ultimately the, the, the broadcaster, the network, the studio, the finance, um, and then the audience, right? So for me, it always starts with just developing great material. So my, I see my job as initially um, all about developing with writers, developing great material, which will then in turn attract filmmakers and actors and distributors and eventually the audience. So nothing really changes, right? It's still the same model. Well, the, uh, you could still have a deal with Netflix for a lot of money and just exclusively provide for them. I mean, are you willing to do that or is what you're saying the nature of the creativity involved has to lead you to different kinds of companies? I mean, I like, never say never, right? If, if someone offers the right deal, if the right distributor, like let's say Netflix offers the right deal, you might look at you, – you obviously would look at that. But personally, I've enjoyed so far at least um, project by project choosing the right home. And typically, again, this was something that Steve felt strongly about, Steve Golan, Anonymous. Um, typically, we try to control the rights up to the point where we know exactly what we're doing. We know who's making it. We know who's going to be in it. We know how much roughly we need to make it. And then based on, our, on, on, on the set of assumptions, we know who the right partners are going to be. Because it's not necessarily the right same partners for each project, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix was for sure the right partner for Outlaw King. They because? Were, it was just very obvious. They had an extraordinary enthusiasm and appetite for it, and they weren't scared of the scale of it. They loved the filmmaker, um, and their platform seemed like the perfect platform for a, a project of that of that sort of ambition. And the fact that it – well, first of all, was it in theaters at all? Yeah, a few theaters, yeah. I mean, you know, there's, they, they, it goes into a few theaters, the Netflix um, film model – you know, not that many, certainly enough to qualify for awards consideration. Um, and is that all you care? I mean, in other words, where do you draw the line? It seems like different creatives have different uh, demands or interests as far as exposure to the theater for their content. I think one has to be honest and just realize the world is changing. You know, um, watching a film on TV when I was a kid meant looking at a little box in a corner, Right. Now, watching a film at home means, you know, very often for many people, it's a much, much larger screen. And so the, the, the experience is a little closer to the experience of going to the cinema. Of course, the difference being that um, you're not with a bunch of strangers. You're not in a room of strangers, right? I don't think the theatrical experience will go away because I think people still want to get out of their homes and go do something, right? And getting out of, out of your house and going to see a film, you know, with your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, etc is you know it's still one of the best ways you can have an evening's entertainment without necessarily going broke 
I mean, concerts now are extraordinarily expensive and yeah. theatre and other forms of entertainment. I think the movie-going experience is A, great, and B, affordable. I think it's a core part of American culture and global culture, in fact. So I don't think it goes away, but I think certainly it coexists. And I think the experience of watching a film at home, now that the experience of watching a film at home is so much better than it used to be, is fine. Um, and I really admire what Netflix have done because they've, they've, they're making a lot of films that, that other people perhaps wouldn't. They're taking risks that people wouldn't. And I think their films are being very widely seen by a much, la much larger audience than would be possible if those films were, you know, beholden to the theatrical model. Hmm. You know? We've talked a number of times in this conversation about Steve Golan, who we should explain for, for those who don't know. And if you're in Hollywood, you knew the man because he was a legend, uh, was associated with award-winning films like Spotlight, The Revenant, was really replicating that success in television with Mr. Robot, 13 Reasons Why Not. Um, talk about your association with him, which goes back uh, not quite to the beginning of anonymous content, but how did this all come together for you guys? I, I knew Steve from uh, when his first company was called Propaganda, which was a music video and commercial production company. I think Steve pioneered the model of helping to develop directors from music videos and commercials into features. So he worked with Spike Jones, for example, as a commercial director and then produced Spike's first movie being John Malkovich. And this was a model that Steve kind of, I think, pioneered. Uh, one thing just to say right off the bat, Steve was a visionary in all aspects of his career. He was ahead of the curve. Um, I, so I met him socially around that time because I was living in Los Angeles. I'd moved here from the UK uh, in my early 20s and was working in music. So I was working on, at that time, music videos with some of these great young directors like Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry. And most of those directors were represented by propaganda. So I just knew Steve from around and from being in the same ecosystem as him. And a few years later, once I'd begun to transition from music into film, uh, I called Steve and said I was going to be a producer. And Steve said, you know, words to the effect of, you know, you're an idiot. Why would you do, why would you do that? It's the worst job in the world. And I told him, you know, I was in fact going to do it anyway. And he said, okay, fine, come do it with me. Just sort of classic Steve, you know. So Steve backed me more or less from the beginning of my, produce, my producing life. And, uh, yeah, he, he started off as a, as a first look overall deal with Anonymous. And that was early in Anonymous's life after he'd left Propaganda and started Anonymous. And he really taught me, I mean, he taught, I, I, it occurred to me the other night at his memorial service that, you know, I would say the majority of what I know about producing that has any value, I learned from Steve. Mm -hmm. But it also occurred to me that many of the people in that room that night probably feel that exact same way, which is a pretty extraordinary legacy, right? That, you know, you so many people who are doing great things in our business, I think, feel that they learned a key part of what they do from Steve or did learn a key part of what they do from Steve. He was a leader. He was a good guy. He had great taste. He was effective. I think um, someone once told me that, you know, the ideal partner in this business or perhaps any business is someone who has great taste, someone who is effective, and someone who's a decent human. And Steve was all three. And I think you often find people who are maybe two of the three. It's well, quite hard to find three of the three. Especially that decent human being <laughs> yeah, part. Yeah, right, you could argue right. there's plenty of people in this town who succeed precisely by not being a decent human being. But I being. think that's the point, right? So you get people who have all come across them, people who have perhaps good taste and are effective, but quite can be monsters, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
it won't shock anyone to if I say like Harvey, for example, right? Great taste and highly effective, but you know, problematic person. Understatement of the year, yes. You know, so um, you know, and then there are people I think who have really good taste who are decent people, but probably find it difficult to be effective within, you know, within Hollywood and making things happen and all of the you know the challenges and difficulties that arise. And Steve was able to, to, to be extraordinarily effective in all parts of his career whilst retaining his decency and his taste, you know? I mean, he would joke about, you know, that he wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to make, you know, superhero, you know, franchises, but it just wasn't his taste. So he never actually tried to do it. His taste was much more highbrow than that. And ultimately, he just followed his taste. And, and empowered everyone who worked with him to do the same thing. And how did you work alongside him exactly? I mean, were you just sort of co-producers or I'm just curious, was there a day-to-day anonymous content management in terms of what you guys were doing as well? Anonymous has never been uh, very bureaucratic. It's always been, um, you know, quite loose with Steve. Everyone sort of who's part of the company as it's grown has a key relationship with Steve and they speak to Steve about when they need help or when they need advice and Steve would, would be there. But more or less, it's quite entrepreneurial within the company. So the different people who are making different things and managing different people generally sort of follow their own ideas and vision. And then, you know, as I say, Steve's a sort of mentor or guide, you know, friend when necessary. Um, so it, it, it was, it was quite loose. There, there is, there is a weekly, has always been a weekly meeting at Anonymous where everyone sort of catches up with what everyone else is doing. But it's, um, it's pretty loose as far as companies of the size it now is, um, go. And I think that's the way Steve liked it. He liked to empower people to find their own way. And then if they got in trouble, they could go to him, which I often did. Oh, really? I think, well, if I had a problem, I could go to Steve and he generally would have some pretty sound, and pragmatic advice as to how to how to how to resolve it. Yes. So what what is the future now of anonymous content without him? Is that just well, look? I think yet? I think it's a group of people who who have who have learned from Steve that are there and 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 are inspired by um, who Steve was, and they will they will continue with the same ethos. You know, it'll be difficult. It, it'll be difficult given that there is a um, there's a giant hole where Steve you know was. Um, but I do think that everybody, all the key people that are anonymous, having um, learned from Steve and having, you know, really cared about um, the quality of what they do, will continue along the same lines. Um, I myself, a, a few months ago, made a decision to, to actually leave anonymous to start my own company, which is I'm, I'm in the middle of doing. And Steve was. Um, it wouldn't be surprising to anyone listening to this that he was extremely supportive of, of that venture. So uh, I'm sort of in the middle of um, stepping out. And, and starting my own company, but I, I remain partners with Anonymous on many existing projects and ventures. Interesting, but so sounds like a big step for you. What what prompted it? You know, I was approached by some some people who I had a good relationship with who offered to back me, and it felt like this would be a moment to try and and see if I if I was capable of building something uh, on my own. Having been with Steve for with Anonymous for thirteen or fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Just felt like a good, you know, I should, I should try. So I'm going to try. Yeah, I, I may mess it up, but I'm going to give it a shot. Got to give it a shot. No, <laughs> you got to respect that. But I'm curious: is there? Do you have a vision of what you want to build? Is it in the same sort of production slash management format? The, there won't be a management component to it. It's going to be a production company, mm-hmm. um, and I want to make films and TV and docu series also. Um, 
document documentaries and docu-series. But, you know, I think the, the, the area I'm most excited about um, is limited series. It's the sort of six, eight, ten-hour event series that, that we've discussed already, this notion of filmmaker-driven TV in which the filmmaker is uh, central. And it's a real collaboration between a filmmaker and a writer and a producer to working together to try and try and make uh it's a, it's a relatively new form um i mean there was a period in the 70s and early 80s in, the, in america where miniseries had a life and a, a currency which went away but this new you know epoch of it feels like a more elevated version right it's a more cinematic version of what tv can be and this interests me a lot so this is i think my main focus well i mean you've clearly established you know how to deliver on these uh limited series uh do you think though as sometimes happens in the business where a certain kind of content a certain genre or subgenre has its moment in the sun and then the sun fades just as quickly or do you think it's going to have sort of Real staying power. We're going to see a lot more of this. I can't say for sure, but it certainly seems that there's a large global appetite for these sort of, you know, limit, limited series. It seems like, and I hear this often from people wherever, whenever I'm traveling, that people seem to be really excited about episodic um, content that they know has an ending. Even if it comes back in another series in a different form, like an, if you anthologize it, for example. I think people, it seems like having not had that option for many years, I mean, the younger generation never having never had it, this idea of a, a you know a, a series with a beginning, middle, and an end seems to have a lot of traction. And uh, as long as that's the case, I'll continue to try and make those shows. And I mean, it seems though that limited series come from a limited supply of molds. I mean, for instance, we were talking earlier almost in jest about you know superhero content or movies, and that wasn't what you or Steve was about. But could you try something like that for a genre like superheroes? I'm just, I'm just curious how broad a palette you're approaching limited series space with. I can only follow my own taste, right? So it's a question always of finding the story that excites you, the story that. But some producers, by the way, sure. don't define it by their own taste. Sure, so sure, sure. I just that's the only way I know how to do it, right? Sure. If I was trying to develop or make a series or a movie with something that I didn't understand or love, I, I, I wouldn't be very good at it, right? I wouldn't be of any value or use to the process, I don't think. Um, and certainly that, that I think Steve was that way through his career. So, And he attracted people to work with him who also felt that way. So that's the ecosystem and the culture that I've lived in for most of my career. Um, and, you know, by the way, sometimes your taste lets you down. It's not like, you know, your taste is always right, but at least it's your taste, right? So at least if you fail, you fail based on your own ideas and feelings rather than trying trying to uh, second guess the market for example which i wouldn't really know how to do you know i don't i often hear people saying the market wants this the market wants that i just i just don't know how to do that i don't know how to find things that excite me and if i figure if they excite me they might excite other people i would hope they would excite some other people too and certainly that starts with and again we alluded to this but if the story excites me and the script excites me then one hopes that it excites a filmmaker then it excites actors. Um, and then once you start to put that together, then hopefully that the end result excites the audience. Um, but that's yeah, that, the short answer is it's just about um, finding stories you care about, stories you'll do anything to tell. Because it's really hard, you know? I mean, there are harder jobs in the world. I don't want to sound like, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not um, curing diseases here. But it's hard, you know? It's, there's so many obstacles to getting things made, as you very well know. And sometimes it takes years. 
and and you have to be really uh, committed to spend years. But when you're the guy who did True Detective, doesn't that sort of make some obstacles fall away? Maybe some. Maybe some in the sense that when you're chasing the rights to the thing, you have more credibility, you have more legitimacy. But at the same time, not that much because you still have to then develop the thing and make it great. And you still have to choose, make the right choices along the way. It's who's going to... Who's going to um, who are going to be your partners in it, both creatively and from a you know business point of view? And it's not like you know if you're the producer of True Detective, it doesn't mean that someone's calling you and saying, "I oh, will finance your next thing, whatever it is." It doesn't. That's unfortunately not how it works. You then have to you know when you next go out with something, people are going to listen. So mm-hmm. so perhaps there's less resistance. There's a bit more um, accessibility. I mean, really, to be a good producer, I think you need taste and access. Taste being the taste, the, the ability to identify interesting ideas, interesting filmmakers, interesting writers, et cetera, et cetera. And then access being the ability to access, you know, money and distribution and, and, and the industry at large, right? Even just the ability to, for example, um, get these um, True Detective scripts in front of Kerry Fukunaga, right? That was just a question of knowing Kerry and having enough credibility that he would look at it when it came his way. Or the same thing with George and Catch-22, right? When, I, when you call Brian Lord and you've, you've, you've made a few things, he's more likely perhaps to take seriously the phone call. Um, but at the end of the day, even if you're taken more seriously, the material has to speak for itself, right? The first thing I really learned um, early on, is my, the first movie I produced was, as, as the lead producer, was a film in England called 44-Inch Chest. And it was written by the same guys who wrote Sexy Beast which I thought well, I was a huge fan of that film. Great movie. And um, so I immediately sort of tracked down the writers and optioned another script by them. And Steve was my, it was the first one I made with Steve was my partner and, and helped me get it going. And we brought a director onto the project who was a friend of both mine and Steve's, a guy called Malcolm Venville, who was a big commercial director at Anonymous, still is. And, um, you know, Malcolm and I had been friends for quite some time and we were able to get the money and go make the movie with John Hurt and Ray Winston and Ian McShane and this Tom Wilkinson, this extraordinary cast. And we were shooting in England and at some point Malcolm and I were giving an interview together to one of the, one of the UK magazines, Trades. And the interviewer said to Malcolm, so is the reason you wanted to make this film with Richard because he was your friend? Malcolm said, absolutely not. And I said, well, why then? He said, because he had a red hot script in his hand. And this sort of light went on in my head where I thought, well, that's it. That's the whole game. The whole game is just to have great material. And to have great material, you have to go out and find it and fight for it. And ideally, you have to have development money because you need to have the ability to turn the idea into a script. And Steve always understood that. Golan understood the necessity of being able to develop in-house. So speaking of great material, one last question. Will we see more True Detective? It's an open question. I think it's going to depend on uh, Nick's appetite to continue. Nick Pizzolatto. The yeah, Nick Pizzolatto, the writer um, and executive producer of the show. Um, and then if he comes up with an idea that excites him and excites HBO, that, that's what it's going to come down to. But I think there's definitely an appetite at HBO to continue if Nick wants to continue and has an idea. It seemed rare that a, a series like that, which kind of had a misstep, it felt, in the season two, but bounced back in season three. Do you feel it's kind of back uh, where it should have been all along? Yeah, I think so. The misstep was perhaps to do with changing the methodology, right? So it went from this, season one was very much made in a singular way as a sort of TV film hybrid. And season two was more traditional, more traditional TV model. Um, And, you know, maybe just being honest, honestly, I think the scripts probably weren't as good. Mm -hmm. And then season three, they were. 
So again, great material, right? So the scripts were great, and it, it led to ultimately the whole every aspect of it was better because the material was better. You know, that's the fundamental thing, I think. I mean, if the scripts aren't, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, I think is what David Mamet once said, and it's probably not wrong. Absolutely. Well, looking forward to uh, whether it's True Detective or other limited series to come, whether from Anonymous or your new venture, uh, looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Thanks for coming in. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.